You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So we have uh, the next five or six weeks together on this subject, demonology, spiritual warfare, and supernaturalism. These, especially as modern Westerners, we don't talk about these subjects very often, except they've been in the Bible for two plus thousand years. So it's up to us to do our due diligence to understand what it is that's at our fingertips and what we ought to understand about the world around us, which is not merely what we can see, but is very much what is unseen. So let's go ahead and open in prayer this morning. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have week in and week out to praise you as a family together, bought by the blood of Christ, that it is through your work and your worship that we commune with you, and we know that we are your sons and your daughters. Thank you for the revelation of Holy Scripture and for the great truths that while we may not fully comprehend, you have given us enough to understand and to reckon with and to move forward with each day as we worship and work to our ability to give you praise. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, this is a topic or a series of topics that are typically not common conversation fodder for the average dinner table in America or in most of the modern West, and especially Christianity outside of perhaps the Pentecostal or charismatic traditions. We tend to assume these are things that go over there where strange and odd things take place, and we just say, we're not going to take a look at that. However, it's broadly and clearly shown to us in Scripture that there's a lot of stuff here we need to reckon with. I remember about five, six, seven years ago, I was in a corporate boardroom We were doing an icebreaker with my peers with whom I worked. And the question was simply, you know, what's the most important thing in your life? Which I immediately assumed we're going to get a lot of whiff answers here because who wants to actually share that about themselves? Now, I had the opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ and his kingship and his lordship and my worship of him, and he is the most important thing in my life. Most of the answers, though, were as I expected. My kid, pickleball, my two dogs. We went around the room, and there were a lot of these non-answers. And then there was one person who said, uh, I worship Odin, who is the all-father, the one-eyed king of the ravens, and I venerate him daily. And you could hear a pin drop in that room. They were already uncomfortable because I brought up Jesus Christ, let alone somebody saying, I worship a Norse god. And that was a paradigm moment for me to think, I think there's something else going on here in our cultural context that maybe we've all missed. So I had had many conversations with this gentleman over the years and and found out it was very, very sincere. He was an honest-to-goodness pagan. Not simply that we look back in the Old Testament and think somebody bowed down to an Asherah pole and that was worship. This guy was doing it today actively and earnestly. And that really led me to think, we need to talk more about this sort of subject matter. Because frankly, as Christians, we actually have the answer key to the categories that unlock these weird questions. Nothing out of this should make us uncomfortable. It's in fact at our, 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 pardon me, at our disposal. So um, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, a few different subjects. 
Today, we're primarily going to be talking about the supernatural worldview of the Bible as it's presented to us there in Scripture. And this really is encapsulated almost fully in the opening chapters of Genesis. We're going to see, too, that Moses had a lot of commentary on this subject in Deuteronomy that really expands what we tend to expect about this sort of topic. Um, In weeks to come, we're going to be looking specifically at our adversary, Satan. Who is he? What does he do? How does he actually function? Why did he fall? And what does that have to do with us? We're going to look at uh, angelology and demonology, which is simply the big canister of words for what are angels and what are demons? What do we actually know about them in Scripture? That segues directly into a more modern and especially right now prescient topic of paganism and the occult. While we might not like to admit it, when we look around ourselves in our cultural moment, more and more people are not religious, they're spiritual. And that really just means they are pagans. They're returning to the same pattern of worship of pretenders and and imposters and false objects of worship. And that includes witchcraft, and that includes the dark arts, these things that we think, that's silly, those are old, antiquated ideas. No, they've been in scripture, they're still applicable today, there are people we know who are honestly interacting with this stuff. We need to know what to do with it. And finally, we'll wrap up with the most, perhaps, common phrase that we know in this subject, which is simply spiritual warfare. What does that mean? Who are we at war with? What does war look like? Does this actually involve me every day? Yes, it does. So we'll have, hopefully, five weeks to go through this survey. There's so much information here, we could unpack it for a year. Frankly, we will never have enough time in this segue, uh, this, this series of five or six weeks, to actually get to everything. So I invite your questions. I fully understand we might go long. We might have to cut stuff short and start over next week. That's no problem. But this is a real conversation worth having, and I, I hope that as anything piques your interest, we consider conversation even outside of Sunday school or with, with our peers. So I have plenty of resources to recommend as well. We may or may not get to all of them, but in the meantime, Elder Miller, do you have an announcement? Please, uh, excuse me, I need one volunteer to help with the five-year-olds and kindergarten class. Um, I hate to play anyone out of the teaching on demons. This is their uh, opportunity to learn about demons. <laughs> we got them. So we'll continue here, and uh, we'll get into our, our first stop here, which is simply today's subject, the supernatural worldview of the Bible. And what I want to get into here is not simply taking for granted that we do, obviously, as Christians, believe there are supernatural things, but what is actually the pattern? What is the backdrop? What are the things that we tend not to take at face value that maybe demand our attention a bit more than we offer to it? Um, I want to talk about a situational awareness What's actually going on around us? It's very easy for us to touch and to feel and to understand what's solid, but is that really all that actually is going on? As Christians, we claim to embrace a supernatural and spiritual worldview, but as modern and materialist Christians, which is simply the environment which we've grown up in, in America or any other part of the modern West, we are wary of embracing the full scope of what might actually be in Scripture, what is actually this, this worldview. 
We have to remember that while the Bible was written for us, it is as applicable today to us as Christians now as it ever was in the past. It wasn't written to us. We are not ancient Hebrews. We are not early Roman citizens. We are living thousands of years outside of a worldview context that simply does not pick up what was being laid down at the time. We've had the Reformation, we've had the Renaissance, we've had the whole Middle Ages, we've had the early Dark Ages. We've had a lot of cultural change that has changed the way we think about the world. Me and Paul, if we were sitting together at a table, will not have the same worldview, cosmology, whatever you want to call it, how the universe works. We will agree on the substance of the faith, but we might have a lot of question marks about what you think about this or that. Uh, in our tradition, we consider historically from church history as, as Reformed Protestants, Martin Luther is typically understood to be the last medieval man. He was looking backwards to the heritage that came out of the Middle Ages. John Calvin is often understood as the first modern man. He was a humanist, he was an empiricist, and he was a wonderful, incredible commentator. I mean, we owe so much to him, but those two men in the Reformation show this divide in worldview. It was often said, mostly as a jest, that Martin Luther could kick over a rock and find a demon underneath of it, whereas many times Calvin would say, those things are not worth our attention. We have bigger fish to fry. We have soteriology. We have systematic theology. We have the doctrines of grace, and those are beautiful, and we should appreciate them. But there was a distinction between those two men's understandings of how the world worked. I want to read this. This is uh, 2 Kings 6, 15, and 17. This is when uh, the armies of the enemies of the Lord were arrayed, and Elisha the prophet was there with his servant, and he has this very interesting offering for us. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He, being Elisha, said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And this is poignant because we tend to think of the spiritual world as very far away. Heaven is up. It's way out. And perhaps in some manners it is, except that much more often as we see in Scripture, it's almost like two layers over the same piece of paper, right? A transparency sheet. There is what we see, and there's also what we don't see, but it's right there. For Elisha and his servant, we have the whole celestial angelic army of the Lord arrayed right there in the same place where he and his servant were standing, but his servant couldn't see it. It was there, but it was unseen. It didn't, make, it didn't make it make believe. It didn't make it imaginary. It didn't make it a figment. It made it real, but in a different place, somehow. So as we consider, uh, and I think many times we, we hear debriefs from missionaries who are abroad, especially in darker places of the world, uh, spiritually speaking, and they tend to say, yeah, we ran into some things we can't understand. There were actually displays and shows of odd, weird things that made us deeply uncomfortable. What do we do with them? 
Well, to the pagan, to somebody who has an understanding of the world as a kind of spiritual inoculation at all times, someone who has witch doctors, someone who has spirit guides, someone who has, you know, real actual sorcery, grand displays of power are going to look very convincing to them. The, the devices of Satan, the evil things of spiritual darkness, are going to be very compelling to somebody who's already used to seeing that. But that shows up in our context, and those are going to be counterproductive to that sort of spiritual deception. We might chalk it up to mental illness or something else. We just say, that's silly. That can't possibly be real. So one of the things I want to talk about in this series is understanding how this spirituality is the same no matter where we see it. It just takes on a different mask or a different shape. It's tailored to deceive anyone in their context. We're far more fraught right with alcoholism and divorce and abuse and addiction and distraction and decadence in the West. Someone shows up with a wall of darkness outside of my house and I can't see the sun, I'm going to say, well, who cares? I'm going to go watch Netflix. But to the person who their whole household is you know, dependent on whatever spirituality they revere, and that display shows up, they're going to be shaken to their core because something big is going on. But instead, it's easier for us to be deluded to simply say, uh, you know, we have a lot of pet sins. We don't worry about those. Anything that distracts us from the gospel, if it's not a really big deal, maybe we can get away with it. That's where spiritual warfare is taking place in our lives. It's very different elsewhere. So today, in our cultural moment, one of the reasons I want to bring this up and why I think this series is very timely is because for all of our entrenched materialism in the West, you know, again, we want to see and touch and feel and say that's it. This culture has kind of spent its biblical capital that's been built up for many centuries. We're running out of it. The Christian grace that many of these countries were founded on is simply run its course and it's depleted. And as such, we know we are wired to worship. We are, you know, God put eternity in our hearts. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. We are meant to worship and revere something. And when basically the flip, the, the script has been flipped on who the Christian God is, we're going to worship something else. So we see America and the modern West becoming less and less religious formally, but more and more spiritual, quote-unquote. You have, you know, your, your witches on TikTok and, and crystals and whatnot, all these things that are simply becoming vogue because we don't know any better, because we've been, again, inoculated with the goodness of Christian faith that has worn out, culturally speaking. So our milieu, our subject matter that we interact with every day is becoming less and less religious, more and more spiritual, and really which is simply that means more and more pagan. There's nothing new here. It's just a revolution of what has been coming back. Any questions before we move on? All right. All right, so what I want to talk about is the critique of materialism, basically where we are right now. We have to reckon with it. We have to figure it out and why we've been a little unwittingly blinded 
in our own upbringings because we just have assumptions about the world and how it works. And it's, it's not really lining up as well as it ought to with Scripture itself. So I want to start by saying it's a very good thing that we do stand here today as inheritors of the Reformation legacy. I am in no way saying, I wish we could go back. I wish none of this had happened. I wish we hadn't taken a left turn. It's beautiful grace and providence that God has laid out for us to understand what is good and what is reformed. We wouldn't be here as reformed Presbyterians if that wasn't true, and I am here with you to say so. We enjoy excellent biblical literacy, the reformed doctrines of grace, the rightly ordered soteriology of God's sovereignty, how we understand how God actually works in saving us. We have the enjoyment of logical, systematic, and confessional theology. These are great blessings. I'm sure God has been happy to see this roll out in history for the betterment of the church. We think of 1 Corinthians 14.33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We should know what we believe. And just a few verses later in 40, one of our favorite Presbyterian verses, all things should be done decently and in order. That is, in fact, a cornerstone of our polity, how we run the church. Because we shouldn't be ad-libbing and making audible calls throughout our governance. We should be shepherding decently and in order. Those are good things, and these are fruit of the Reformation. Should not throw them out. However, when we think about the paradigm of spiritual warfare and supernaturalism in the world, we have to look to what Paul says in Ephesians. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Now, that is kind of the tripartite distinction of spiritual warfare. That's what we deal with every day. We deal with the world, the devil, and the flesh. And it's kind of like fronts in a war, right? If you are not defending yourself in one area, you'll be easily flanked by the opposition that comes to take advantage of your weakness. Throughout, especially modern Protestant history, we see you know, various denominations, various convictions tend to greatly emphasize one of these, usually at the expense of the other one or two. As Reformed Presbyterians, we have a robust appreciation for the corruption of the flesh. We know total depravity inside and out in every direction. We have some limited commerce with the social and political darkness of our culture, but often we have very little awareness or care for active intelligent, ancient, spiritual evil. That is, our adversary, Satan. Again, we're going to study more on him specifically next time. But the point is, we tend to caricature things, right? You know, the charismatics will say everything is a demon of something to the effect that we don't even care about our depravity. We don't care about influences from the decay of the earth, of the world around us. But in our side of the church we tend to be almost so satisfied with our understanding of total depravity, we'd say it's 100% the flesh, right? We just need to mortify our sin. And if we do that, we're good. Meanwhile, there are some other things going on here that are greatly seeking to take advantage of our short-sightedness. 
None of us are perfect. We have no perfect churches. This is a weakness of our tradition. But it's something that's worth consideration. There's a lot in Scripture that helps us. So the church in America, and perhaps, as I said, the Reformed Church most of all, is still breathing the air of Calvin's modern empiricism. We need to see what is real with our eyes. We need to hear what is real with our ears. We need to employ our senses, our scientific methodology to the rational world. And if the subject matter does not fit that paradigm, we have to admit we're apt to dismiss it. Not all of us, but I'd say on the majority whole, myself included, if I can't reckon with it, why do I even think about it? So I want to consider the skeptic Rudolf Bultmann. He was a neoliberal German theologian of the late 19th, early 20th century. And he was certainly not one that we would commend ourselves to study richly, but he had this very interesting statement. We cannot use electric lights and radios and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medicinal and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. Now, I don't think that we go wholesale with Boltman's argument, but is it not easier to avoid those spiritual elements of the Bible which maybe just make us uncomfortable rather than reckon with them? I'd rather skip that sermon and go to the next chapter. Are we embarrassed to believe the stated worldview of the Bible? We certainly believe in general supernaturalism, the virgin birth, the God-man, the sanctity of the sacraments, and the resurrection of the dead. But what about angels and demons and giants and magic and necromancy, pagan gods, voyages to heaven, apparitions, apocalyptic cataclysm, sorcery, astrology, enchantment, and witches, because that's all there too. It's the aim of this series, I hope, in the next few weeks, that we learn to better interact with the spiritual worldview which is presented in Scripture. All of the authors of the Old and New Testament, the Second Temple Jewish scholars between the Testaments, Jesus Christ himself understood and embraced the same stuff that the Church Fathers continued to hold until at least the fourth century. This entire worldview, this understanding of what the scriptural world looks like, this was not up for debate for centuries until after the passing of the apostles. In doing so, we'll see that the modern Reformed Church has atrophied our understanding of the larger spiritual context of our everyday lives, and hopefully we will be better equipped to face what is right now at hand, this contemporary watershed cultural shift towards paganism, witchcraft, pop Satanism in the world. I was talking with a friend of mine just earlier this week. He lives out near Wichita in Kansas, and there is now a Satanist club at their high school that looks great. It's very flashy. It's got great marketing. It's been fully approved. It's ready to roll out. All the kids are going to sign up for it for the second semester this year. That's not uncommon. That sounds shocking, perhaps, to us in our more conservative milieu, but that's what's going on. Or people who just kind of, you know, say, oh, yeah, what's my sign? What's my, what's my, you know, what do I look to astrology for this? That used to be, you know, the, the silly horoscope at the bottom of the newspaper 30 years ago, but that's what somebody's living their lives by right now, and that is a pagan concept. That is appealing to authority and revelation outside of what God has given to us. And we see all throughout the Old Testament especially, God says, yeah, don't do that. 
It's not for your good. So I, I think also uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? Anybody want to answer that for me? No. Huh? Right. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty man has concerning God. So that is what we are principally taught in Scripture. It is the story of the gospel. It's a story of who we are and who God is. But I would argue that principally also assumes that there is a little bit other that is being taught in Scripture as well. And I want to prove later on that it's actually very still gospel-centered. But it is some of this stuff that we go, God's taking us behind the counter to something that we, what we have any, we have any context for what this is? Some weird things in Scripture that, again, in other churches and other times, maybe we say, we're going to skip this passage and just go ahead and expositorily preach the next pericope because this one's hard to deal with. So I want to talk about this. There are, we, we think of the, the fall of man as, as the true fall of Scripture. But ultimately, there are, I think, three falls in Genesis 1 through 11 that better illustrate what we're dealing with here. And I want to pause before here. Are there any questions or comments? And we've gone through a lot of this preamble very quickly. Yes, Carolyn. Um, just in this Yes, we do. Yeah, and so to, to summarize Carolyn's point, ultimately, even, even in the most mundane circumstances, like just corralling children for a Bible study, if they're out of control and absolutely distracting, we, we should not simply say, maybe they needed a snack or maybe they needed a nap. Maybe we also need to pray because there is a spiritual reality to what's going on as well as a physical reality. Yes, these kids probably do need a snack and need, maybe need a nap. But also, there is... Again, intelligent evil that wants to disrupt the gospel. We're going to get to this later in the series, but ultimately spiritual warfare, if you reduce it to anything, the pithy statement is anything that distracts from the gospel, that's it. That's spiritual warfare. 
It is either to the Christian to be discouraged, to be dissuaded, to be distrustful of the means of grace, or it is to the person who is not a believer to simply be barred from access or delusion away to something else that captivates their heart. That's spiritual warfare. We will unpack that more. Jared, do you have a point? Yeah, I guess that's more of a question for you. I've always thought about this issue in terms of enlightenment and um, as man's, mankind's scientific understanding of the world mm-hmm. increased. Mm-hmm. Whenever we would find an explanation, a mechanical explanation for how, you know, let's say you know, a kid's brain's wired and there's a chemical shooting over here that makes all this and that so we get them, you know, a pill and it tones them down. That's a mechanical process, right? Mm-hmm. And as we have discovered explanations for the mechanical processes that drive a lot of what we see, we, as a culture, tend to say, well, okay, therefore, we used to explain that with a demon, therefore, there's no demon involved. Right. What we didn't explain was the why. Mm-hmm. We explained the how, right? Um, do, you, do you think that what you're talking about in the modern church is a result of just the broader enlightenment thinking, or do you believe that it predates the enlightenment thinkers and is really something specific to kind of God's providence and the uber focus on, um, on depravity? So to summarize Jared's question, he's asking, you know, ultimately, we we tend to readily divorce the spiritual and the physical today. For instance, in the past, maybe we said this person had a seizure, he was demonically oppressed. Today, we say he has a seizure, he needs this pill, and he'll be better. Is that something that is historically true, or is it something that is maybe a a, a baggage claim that we have from being post-Enlightenment people? And I think, and Jared, you might get tired of me giving this answer because I may offer it many times throughout this course, but uh, yes, both and. As in, we need to understand absolutely that there is a spiritual reality to the demonic. These things are true. Christ was not going through the New Testament and happening upon a bunch of mental illness cases that simply we didn't understand at the time. There's a great distinction there. Even the ancient people understood, were you sick in the head or were you sick in the soul? There were two different things. They understood that distinction. They weren't stupid. The other thing, though, is I do think that as, you know, we, again, we have the great benefit of coming out of the Enlightenment and learning so much, we've, been, we've become... Uh, much better equipped with the mastery of understanding creation. Certainly we are not masters, but we are much further along in a secular knowledge of simply how A and B add to C than we were two, three, four thousand years ago. However, that comes with the unfortunate side effect of our becoming very comfortable with being able to, as you said, just mechanistically saying there's a pragmatic cause, there's a pragmatic effect, that's all there is to it because it does seem to work out that way. And I think um, one book, I didn't bring it with me, but one book that I've really enjoyed reading over the years is uh, C.S. Lewis, his Discarded Image, which is his, was one of the last books he ever wrote, and it was his kind of skeleton key to unlocking like the, the medieval and Renaissance understanding of the world. It's saying, hey, I'm a modern guy, but I read all these old books, and I just don't get, this is weird stuff. What are they talking about? 
And he's saying there was a great duality there that he traces all the way back to the ancient period, that he said the average Hebrew would have absolutely agreed with this too. You know, we, we talk about, for instance, an apple falls from a tree, it's obeying the law of gravity. He would also say that in the medieval and the ancient mind, that apple was kindly inclined to its destination. Like it had a spiritual desire to go to where it needs to go. And he said, you know, he's brought that up in lectures and people have scoffed at him. Oh, you see this apple has a spiritual inclination? That's a ridiculous claim. And he said, well, you also say the apple is a lawful being who follows the law of gravity. That also sounds like a pretty silly abstraction for an apple. It's both. We see in scripture, and we'll get here later on in the series, you know, we understand the sun, moon, and stars are actual physical sun, moon, and stars. But they're also referred to just as many times as spiritual beings, as the host of heaven, as things that should not be revered and worshipped, as things that have agency, as things that do hold things in places and times. So, yeah, the sun is a nuclear furnace burning in the void of space. We, we, we can empirically see that. The Bible also suggests that there's a spiritual component to it doing what it does because it's what God created to do. I think there's an important duality there. Does that get to your question a little bit? Yeah, yeah it does. And I guess, I, I guess the final piece that I do think this is a special, did, did this dismissal of the other side, so to speak, did this, is that a product of enlightenment or do you think it's something specific to the Reformed tradition divorced from. Sure, yeah, I, I think the, the Reformed tradition has benefited from having this you know, more systematic understanding of the world. We're not going to look at Scripture in the first century AD the way we are today in terms of putting in categories and summary statements, and that's a good thing. Again, that's, that there is some advancement that's there. However, it tends to be kind of a zero-sum state, I think, as in, you know, the, the more we tend to emphasize what's obvious and material and classifiable, we tend to say, well, we don't need these other categories anymore. They're gone. But that's the hard thing for us because we're finite people, right? We only have so much bandwidth, theologically or otherwise, to understand usually anything at a given time. The more we emphasize over here, the less we care to put stuff over here. God is bigger than that. The Bible is bigger than that, and it's, it's tough. It's a hard thing. You know, we, we can say that, you know, maybe the ancient Hebrew and the early first century apostolic Gentile could hold these things together better than we can. Well, tough. We're not there anymore. We have to do the hard work now to try and go back and put these things together. So I already know we're going to be way out of time for this, so I want to move forward a little bit. Um, what I want to aim for here is looking at three moments in Genesis 1 through 11 that kind of give us the whole backdrop to this. And it's not just weird stuff for its own sake. It is pointing to a really beautiful Christological conclusion. This is the majesty and glory of Christ all the way back in the earliest parts of the Old Testament. So we often speak of the fall of man as a singular event, but in fact, there are three spiritual falls in the primeval history of the Bible. These falls, when considered together, point not only to the deep and pervasive supernatural worldview of Scripture, but as I said, to this profound Christ-centered trajectory of why the Old Testament matters. We have Genesis 3.15, Genesis 6.1-4, and Genesis 10 and 11. We'll see how much we can get through here this morning. We'll start with the low-hanging fruit, no pun intended, Genesis 3.15. 
This is after the serpent has deceived Eve and Adam, and Adam has failed in his priestly and kingly duty to have dominion over this interloping spirit in the garden, and they fall. They choose pride and self-deception over the truth of Yahweh. God says to them, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is the thesis statement of the Bible, the gospel, the second coming of Christ. It's all right here. This is why we refer to it in a more theological statement as the Proto-Evangelion, which is a $5 word that just means the kernel or the first gospel. This is the whole statement of what Scripture is trying to teach us in one statement, one phrase. Satan has deceived Eve. Eve will not decay and die. She'll be redeemed through her own fruit. Christ, ultimately, her seed, will destroy Satan. That's the gospel in a nutshell. For both the woman and the serpent, there is a spiritual and a physical seed implied by this proto-evangelion. For the woman, we have the spiritual seed, the children of God through faith, the invisible church. We, in this room, Lord willing, are included in that number. This is the spiritual seed of faith. We see the physical seed as well, the messianic line of Jews and Jesus Christ himself. This is the covenant community of Israel. There was both a spiritual reality that we share today. There is a physical reality in time, born out through real people in real contexts that led to real consequences. If Christ were never a physical man, we would not be saved today. That's a very important distinction. It's a good thing there was a physical seed. For the serpent, we have the spiritual seed, the godless rebels who spurn Yahweh. Those who today and in the years past rejected or did not hear the gospel. Simple as that. Those who are not born again, they are not elect, they spurn the gospel, they spit and hate the church. They are the spiritual offspring of Satan. There is also a physical offspring of Satan, which we're going to get to in the second fall. So we're going to Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These are the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now I'll spearhead this segment by saying this is a hotly contested interpretive piece of scripture that is definitely perhaps the top of the list of that segment of, this is weird, let's move on to the next part of Genesis. Let's go to the flood and forget this ever happened. There are as many as I can see, about five distinct historic interpretations of this passage, but really two rise above the rest and remain commonly accepted in various parts of the world and in church history. There is the Sethite view. This is what we would typically say is probably what most of us assume or what most of us come out of in our backgrounds. 
that the sons of God here in this scripture are the children of Seth, the godly descendant of Adam. They represent the covenant line. While the daughters of men are the children of Cain, the ungodly descendant of Adam. The first time this shows up in history is in the second century by Jews who specifically were trying to discredit any claim that Christ was a supernatural son of God. They wanted to say he's not the Messiah. That wasn't him. We're still right. We got to forget this guy and move on. It was later adopted by Christians broadly in the fifth century through St. Augustine and his excellent work, The City of God. But it, both Augustine and later commentators tend to be uh, kind of dismissive here. He says, are we to believe that angels mated with women and that the giants resulted from these unions? And that's his commentary. And he says, that's ridiculous. Moving on. This is the current popular evangelical view, including among many reform voices, both uh, Dr. Meredith Klein, who is excellent. We all love him here. I certainly do. Certainly Pastor Wright does. He studied with him. Uh, tremendous scholar, but he also does not oblige with this. Even John Calvin, you can go to the library over here and grab his commentary on Genesis. His summary statement is, this is an ancient figment, and it's outrageous. Moving on. He applies no hermeneutic, but tosses it out with no additional commentary, much like Augustine many centuries before. Simply, this is kind of uncomfortable and seems ridiculous. Forget it. So, I want to look at some of the problems here. I'm also not being dogmatic about this. You're welcome to adopt this view because most people do. But I want to show that I think if we really look at the text, we're going to see more there. Now, before I get into that, because I've opened a can of worms and we have five minutes left, are there any questions? We can always pick up here next time. Fair enough. So one of the difficulties here is that when we look at the Hebrew here, man in Hebrew is Adam or Adam. That's why we get Adam's name. He is man. The sons of God in that verse is called Bene Elohim, which is the sons of Elohim, the divine. The former refers to flesh and blood. The latter refers to spiritual beings. We tend to equivocate or make two things that mean different things mean the same thing and dismiss the interpretation given to us from the text itself. Typically, this argument is to suggest a few things. One, all the way through Genesis so far, we've been talking about human families. So why the heck are we talking about fallen angels? That seems very out of the ordinary. It's kind of a weird record scratch. All of a sudden, we're talking about this, and it's only four verses, and then we shift back to humanity. It seems like a speed bump. St. Alain Fah consistently suggests that if the chief sin at the end of this antediluvian or pre-flood world is to blame to fallen angels, well, then why does man get the brunt of that? That also seems inconsistent. Why would all flesh be cursed because of something some naughty angel did? It wasn't up to the people themselves. But when we equivocate Adam with Bene Elohim, it's not an accurate understanding of what the account states, however briefly it shows up. And one of the reasons why is a lot of the arguments are, you know, we're going to say Adam or the, the sons of God are godly Sethites, these Seth descendants. The daughters of men are uh, the, the daughters of Cain, this reprobate line. But those aren't the words that are used. It's not talking about humans and other humans. It's talking about humans and not humans. Which again, hey, it's weird, but that's what it says. 
This view disregards the consensus opinion of the ancient world in a wholesale and dismissive manner. This is the tricky thing. This is what really convinced me, ultimately, was you look at this, this attitude didn't show up again until Jews wanted to discredit Christ, and later it was adopted by Augustine because he was uncomfortable with it. Up to that point, this was the consensus understanding of what this verse and what this backdrop means. The opinions of all Second Temple Jews, the apostles, centuries of church fathers such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Eusebius, Ambrose, Jerome, and many others, primarily because that supernatural reading is a concept which is difficult to stomach, more so because it is understood to be absurd rather than taken at face value. So all of those gentlemen, the esteemed church fathers, the apostles, we have Jude and Peter referring to this directly in their epistles, and yet a lot of people say, Ugh, I don't like that, so forget it. And frankly, as of the fifth century AD, that has kept on trucking. There's always been some people who say, no, supernatural reading, moving on. Others say, forget that. So we have two minutes left. I'm going to stop here. Ultimately, I think it's my, it's my understanding here that this is a view which rests on the comfort of the reader rather than the verity of the text. And again, I'm not being dogmatic here because this is a popular opinion and a lot of us hold it. And if you do, it doesn't distract from the gospel, but I think we're going to miss a lot of the elaborate context of the rest of the Old Testament that speaks to much bigger and deeper things. Again, ultimately aiming towards a Christ-glorifying end. So with that, we have two minutes. Any questions or comments? Alex. Um, resources would you recommend on this subject of the whole series uh, for further reading? Um, just overall, yeah, I, I've had the pleasure of this year of reading a large stack of books. Um, honestly, many of the Puritans offer, I think, some of the finest commentaries on all these things. They are, you know, our, our great giant forebears in terms of theology and devotion. William Perkins has, uh, again, with all the Puritans, they have the best-named books you're ever going to read. So you have uh, Jeremiah Burroughs with the precious remedies against the devices of Satan, William Perkins' uh, Discourse on the Damned Art of Witchcraft, uh, Richard Gilpin, Three Treatises on the Great Temptations of Satan. There are many, many books here, uh, and I'd be happy to meet with you afterwards just to give you a list, and, and that goes for anybody. I should have brought a stack today. I forgot. But in the future, I'll try and have some at hand. Uh, but the Puritans are great. There's also uh, a lot of the church fathers have a lot to say about this. And I know we, you know, we, we want to have, especially later church fathers, taken with a grain of salt as they get further and further centuries away. But a lot of them have excellent commentary, especially those who are close to the apostolic age and have kind of an ear to the ground on this stuff. Rob? The question being is, is like the paranormal related to kind of the weird spiritual stuff in the Bible? Yeah. Yes, I would say so. Yeah, the question is, is, quote, paranormal things, you know, the weird, creepy things out there on the fringes and the margins... 
is that spiritual warfare meant to distract from the gospel, especially when it shows up in a materialistic context and we're either terrified by it or just ignore it entirely? And I would say, yeah, because I think two, two easy reactions to that is either this sh- sh- breaks everything I know about the world, so now instead of being this tidy materialist, I guess I should go look into you know sketchy spiritual stuff, which is a bad way, or you say, that's ridiculous, I reject it out of hand, which means I reject all spiritual things out of hand, which means I also reject the gospel out of hand because I associate it with this weird, silly thing. Also a bad route. I would say, yeah, slam dunk for the adversary who wants to keep people from loving Christ. Any other questions? I think we have, I could take one more and then I'll, we'll, we'll pray. Rob, you want to go again? Sure. Like, so the question is a healthy way to look at the, the paranormal that isn't just a distraction ourselves as Christians. I think uh, we have to put it in the context of knowing what the source material is. That is, stuff that wants to mess with you and creep you out and disturb you is evil. It's not good. You're not going to say, maybe this is a thing that can be redeemed. Maybe we need to have arms wide open uh, to this you know, supernatural experience because that'll give us some truth. No, truth comes from Scripture. Truth comes from the Bible. God has given us clear and present revelation. We don't need to tango with anything else. I would say that we, especially in this kind of watershed shift, I think the world, as we know it, is becoming more spiritual. Odd things are going to happen more often because this has been held at bay by, again, kind of that Christian capital in the West for centuries. It's wearing off. You know, the, the transparency sheet is, is moving away, and now all of a sudden it's right there. So I do think we need to be thoughtful about it. We need to not be dismissive. And we also need to care and, and be considerate for those who have difficulties and have experiences, shall we say. But we need to remember that, you know, ultimately, and we're going to get to this later, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not like God and Satan are duality figures. Satan is a created being. He's infinitely subordinate to Yahweh, to God. It is not a one-to-one. And more ironically is that everything that Satan wants to do to distract and destroy is under the providence and direction of God. He's on a leash, and he never hasn't been. So we should not fear. You know, I think of Psalm 91. We don't, we, we, his faith is a shield and a buckler. We will not fear the terror of the night. Period. There is no chink in our armor that means that Satan wins by some fluke. Doesn't happen. So, good question, and we'll expand on that as we go. Again, this is preamble. We're going to pick up where we left off next time. Sorry we ran out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to talk about the deep things of Scripture. We think of King Solomon who says, God hides what is hard and is the duty and joy of kings to search it out. You give this to us so that we might more richly embrace the gospel. Please prepare us for worship, as even in just a few moments we will join together to offer you praise and prayer and enjoy the sacraments. We do this to bless Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.